Greetings, Boards Insiders. It's Patrick, your host. There's still time to join our Listen, Learn, Live contest, whose grand prize will be payment for your USMLE Step 1 or Step 2 registration fee. Just go to bit.ly slash paymyusmle for details. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Welcome to the Inside the Board's podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. It's a simple episode today as we wind down the Study Smarter series. This time it's GI Part 2. First up, some questions from our All Audio QBank. These are earlier versions with uh, robot readings from Alexa. And then we've got Elizabeth covering a couple GI questions as well. We've got a couple more episodes for those of you who are taking step one a little bit later in the season. Go check out our main channel to hear our audio blog on what to do in your last two weeks of USMLE step one prep. And we've added a new feature to the platform. So if you'd like to engage with us, talk about uh, uh, things related to your study habits, ask questions for the podcast, provide feedback, uh, and connect with other people who can support you during your study in medical school, check out bit.ly slash ITB Slack, join our community, and all of the podcast hosts will be checking in from time to time. And we're hoping to use the channel to engage with you more and provide you a forum to find some support amongst your fellow students. So check it out, bit.ly slash ITB Slack. And of course, go download the Inside the Board's beta iOS app and subscribe to our All Audio QBank so you can study on the go in those final weeks of your USMLE Step 1 prep. Or... Get a subscription to the Step 2 version for all your shelf exam and USMLE Step 2 study needs for those of you especially who are moving in to third year. A 21-year-old female with history significant for multiple food allergies as well as asthma presents to her physician complaining of food intermittently sticking in her throat. This only occurs with solid foods and is accompanied by chest pain and occasionally vomiting. She denies constitutional symptoms, including weight loss, fevers, and fatigue. She also denies reflux as well as tobacco or alcohol use. Physical exam is normal. Which of the following findings is most likely present in this patient upon endoscopy? Is it A. Esophageal webs B. Intestinal metaplasia C. Linear furrows. Or is it answer choice, D? Punched out ulcers. And the correct answer is C. Linear furrows. This patient is presenting with signs and symptoms of eosinophilic esophagitis. This IgE mediated esophagitis stems from food allergies causing eosinophil infiltration into the distal esophagus resulting in dysphagia and food impaction. Asthma is also commonly found in these patients, as it is one of the atopic disorders. Other atopic disorders to watch out for are allergic rhinitis and eczema. 
Endoscopy will generally reveal linear furrows and esophageal rings. Although dysphagia is concerning for malignancy, this patient's age and lack of constitutional symptoms point elsewhere. Next question. A 28-year-old man presents to the ED with progressively worsening abdominal pain following a high-speed motor vehicle accident. He is conscious and denies any head trauma. Vitals are within normal limits with the exception of heart rate, which is 130. A CT scan reveals evidence of retroperitoneal bleeding. Which of the following structures is most likely to be the source? Is it A. Jejunum B. Pancreas C. Spleen Or is it answer choice D. Transverse colon And the correct answer is B. Pancreas This question is ultimately asking whether or not you can recognize the retroperitoneal organs, one of which is the pancreas. Unfortunately, this is a matter of memorization. However, the mnemonic, sad pucker, is an easy way to remember the retroperitoneal organs most likely to appear on your exam. Sad pucker, stands for, suprarenal glands, aorta and inferior vena cava, duodenum, pancreas, ureters, colon, kidney, esophagus, and rectum. It should be noted that only the second and third segments of the duodenum and the ascending and descending segments of the colon are retroperitoneal, with the remaining segments interperitoneal. Next question. A 62-year-old man presents to the ED after several bouts of frankly bloody emesis. He endorses drinking a pint of whiskey daily for the past 15 years. Upper endoscopy reveals esophageal varices. Portosystemic shunting between which two vessels is most likely responsible for this finding? Is it A. Left gastric and azygous veins B. Perambilical and epigastric veins C. Short gastric and inferior phrenic veins Or is it answer choice D. Splenic and azygous veins And the correct answer is A. Left gastric and azygous veins. Esophageal varices occur when portal vein pressure rises due to liver damage, causing reversal of blood flow and shunting to systemic veins. In the case of esophageal varices, blood is shunted from the left gastric vein to the azygous vein. A dangerous and often lethal consequence of these varices is rupture followed by massive hemorrhage. Next question. A 47-year-old female presents to the ED with complaint of persistent right upper quadrant pain. She states that she has had similar episodes in the past, but never as severe. She endorses anorexia and nausea but no emesis. Vitals are within normal limits, and physical exam is significant for Murphy's sign. Serum studies show elevations of LFTs, including transaminases and bilirubin, both total and direct. Serum lipase is also elevated. Right upper quadrant ultrasonography is most likely to reveal a stone at which of the following locations? Is it A. Common bile duct B. Common hepatic duct C. Cystic duct Or is it answer choice D. Main pancreatic duct And the correct answer is A. Common bile duct. 
Serum studies can give important clues when determining the location of biliary stones. Elevation in lipase is indicative of pancreatic dysfunction, while elevation in bilirubin and LFTs points us towards hepatic obstruction. The only portion of the biliary system that is common to both the pancreas and the liver is the common bowel duct, so this must be the location of the obstructing stone. Next question. A 36-year-old woman comes to the emergency department because of abdominal pain that has been increasingly severe over the past three days. Physical examination shows hepatomegaly and shifting dullness. The patient reports no previous health concerns aside from an appendectomy 12 years ago. She has taken OCPs for two years. A liver biopsy is performed and shows severe central lobular congestion and necrosis. Which of the following best describes this patient's underlying condition? A. Benign proliferation of epithelial cells. B. Copper deposition in hepatocytes. C. Fibrosis of bile ducts. Or D. Hepatic vein thrombosis. And the correct answer is D, hepatic vein thrombosis. So what's wrong with this patient? Bud Chiari syndrome is what it's known as. The patient's clinical presentation illustrates the classic case of hepatic vein thrombosis due to oral contraceptives, hypercoagulable states that predispose to this condition. Remember, Bud Chiari syndrome is defined as hepatic venous outflow tract obstruction. Hepatic vein thrombosis is characterized by a triad. Remember this. Number one, hepatomegaly. Number two, abdominal pain, and third, ascites. Patients may also have fever, jaundice, edema, and bleeding from portal hypertension. Bud Chiari syndrome may lead to fulminant acute, subacute, or chronic liver failure. The diagnosis is usually made non-invasively due to the risk of bleeding. However, liver biopsy shows central lobular necrosis and congestion in this condition. The pathological distribution is focal since not all hepatic veins are involved. You may have chosen choice A. I think that was the most tempting and correct answer for this question. Benign proliferation of epithelial cells. And you might have been thinking, well, hepatocellular adenomas are kind of like a benign proliferation and they're associated with prolonged oral contraceptive use. And that's true. However, this is not characterized by central lobular congestion and necrosis, but rather has a normal histological appearance without the portal tracts. Next question. A 15-year-old girl comes to the office for her annual visit. Physical examination shows mild jaundice and scleral icterus. She says that she has recently begun taking oral contraceptives. Laboratory studies show conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Her AST is 15 and her ALT is 18. Upon oral cholecystography, the biliary system cannot be visualized, even with double contrast. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis leading to these findings? And just to let you know before I give the answer choices, her AST of 15 and ALT of 18 are considered normal levels. Choice A is alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. B is Kriegler-Nahar syndrome type 2. C is Dubin-Johnson syndrome. Or D is Gilbert syndrome. And the correct answer is C, Dubin-Johnson syndrome. Remember that if you have a patient that presents with mild jaundice, elevated bilirubin, have this on your differential. Dubin-Johnson is caused by a failure of hepatocytes to transfer conjugated bilirubin into bile canaliculi. It is an autosomal recessive disease that can present shortly after birth or after an inciting incident. 
Laboratory results show an increase in conjugated bilirubin without elevation of liver enzymes, ALT, and AST. There may be hepatomegaly and macroscopically the liver is black. Next question. A 25-year-old man comes to the ED because of fever, jaundice, and pain localized to the right upper quadrant. Endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography shows alternating strictures in dilation of the bile ducts with a characteristic beating appearance with involvement of both intrahepatic and extrahepatic bile ducts. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And the answer choices are A. Crohn's disease B. Polymyalgia rheumatica C. Primary biliary cirrhosis or D. Primary sclerosing cholangitis And the correct answer is primary sclerosing cholangitis. Remember that this leads to fibrosis in the intra- and extrahepatic bile ducts. The hallmark feature of PSC is this beating appearance of the biliary tree and radiographic imaging with contrast. This is a result of the alternating dilation and stricture of the bile ducts resulting in this beating appearance, and concentric fibrosis of the bile duct lumen and loss of small bile ducts may be seen in a histological section, although that's not mentioned in the question stem. Up to 70% of patients with PSC suffer from ulcerative colitis. Remember that strong association. PSC patients are typically male in their third through fifth decades of life. And again, it's characterized by this jaundice, pruritus, and progressive fatigue with the laboratory studies that show the elevated alkaline phosphatase and perinuclear antineutrophilic cytoplasmic antibody, or PANCA. Remember that 10 to 15% of PSC patients go on to develop cholangiocarcinoma and that, as we said in another question, the only effective therapy for PSC is liver transplantation. To run over our incorrect answers quickly, Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease associated with interferon gamma-producing type 1 helper T cells. Remember, patients are usually characterized by recurrent diarrhea, crampy abdominal pain, and fever. Common findings will include granulomas, ulcers, and strictures of the terminal ilium and colon. Polymyalgia rheumatica typically affects adults over 50 years of age. The common presentation involves pain about the shoulders, neck, hip girdle, and torso. The ESR, or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and C-reactive protein are usually elevated in these patients. And then, of course, primary biliary cirrhosis. Remember this one? A lot of people will get this kind of confused with primary sclerosing cholangitis, so let's tell the difference. Primary biliary cirrhosis commonly affects women between 40 to 50 years of age. The pruritus is usually present during the disease onset, while the jaundice develops later with increasing hepatic damage. Antimitochondrial antibodies, alkaline phosphatase, and cholesterol concentrations are elevated in these patients. Bilirubin is actually elevated in late disease. All right, and that's all we got for today. Go listen to Physiology by Physio, hosted by Greg Rodden. In-depth reviews of physiology-related topics for first- and second-year medical students especially. Our Medical Nemesis podcast, hosted by Chase DeMarco, which is aimed at teaching you accelerated learning and study hacks. And of course, the ITB main channel, intended for everyone for inspiration and learning how to think like a question writer.